Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. This is Episode 6, Appellate Experts. Thanks for joining me. So This is a podcast that focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida in both the state and federal courts. Each week we'll be talking about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. My guest this week is another leader in Florida's appellate community, Jamie Moses. Jamie is senior counsel in the Orlando office of Holland and Knight and is a board-certified appellate specialist. She is currently the chair of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Certification Committee, and she's a former member of the Florida Bar Board of Governors, among many other positions she has held. Jamie is an impressive and talented appellate lawyer and appears to be one of the busiest and most productive people that I have ever met. My interview with Jamie is coming up next. Jamie, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So now you are a board-certified appellate lawyer, but what are your primary areas of appellate practice? Pretty much anything civil in state or federal. I would have loved to have gotten some criminal experience throughout my career, but it just didn't play out that way. And is there anything in particular that you love about being an appellate lawyer? I really, really like digesting records and creating arguments from the record. And I really, really like the congeniality of the appellate bar. Appellate lawyers are very easy to work with. And we can typically reach agreement on just about anything. Not, of course, on the outcome of the appeal, but motions for extension of time or supplementing the record. And it's just a a great group of people to work with. It really is. It's a a great community. And I, I love that part, too. So now we're both board certified appellate lawyers and you and I are both currently serving on the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Certification Committee. And for me, I'm just finishing my first year, but how long have you been on the committee? Oh, I wish I remembered. I think this is the this year was the beginning of my fourth year, maybe my third. Um, we are allowed to serve two three year terms and then we would be required to go off the committee after two, three-year terms. And then I believe you have to take a three-year break if you want to come back on. And that is so that uh, obviously other lawyers can get a chance to serve. So I'm either in my third or fourth year. I just can't seem to remember right now. I know I have trouble keeping track of that stuff too. It all sort of blends together. Mm -hmm. But so part of the reason you're on today is because today or this year, you are the chair of the committee. So you're, you're my boss and, <laughs> and you've been a kind and benevolent leader. Uh, thank thank you. you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Before we talk about appellate certification specifically, I think we need to back up just a little bit and talk about, you know, board certification generally. Mm-hmm. The Florida Bar has this board certification program that allows lawyers to become board certified experts in in various areas of practice. And and can you talk a little bit about the program generally and how it works? Sure. I believe the Florida Bar now has 27 areas of specialty. And those are, you know, 
admiralty and education law and I think we have health law and we have tax and we have appellate. Some of them are subject specific, others are practice specific. So appellate is practice specific um, where health law is subject specific. So how many lawyers are board certified experts by the Florida Bar and how many of those are appellate experts? Okay. Well, the Florida Bar has over 100,000 members, but only about 84,000 are considered active and in good standing. Of the 84,000, 5,200, so about 6%, are board certified in a specialty. Of those lawyers, only 184 are certified in appellate practice. So, um, obviously, that's a, a very, very small percentage of all the practicing lawyers in the state of Florida. Right. Yeah. So that's what makes it such a great uh, marketing uh, point, right, is that it's a, it's a very uh, small group of people. Very small. Very small. So, Jamie, let's talk about if somebody who's listening to the podcast is interested in becoming board certified and presumably in appellate practice, because I can't imagine why they would be listening to this podcast if they weren't appellate lawyers, right? Uh, what What are the requirements for appellate certification? Because they're a little bit different across the different specialties. Yes, every specialty has its specific requirements, although I believe what's consistent across all of them is a minimum of five years of practice the requirement that your practice is dedicated to that particular area and peer review, a written exam, and CLEs. Um, what you need to do in each one for each specialty is different, but those I believe are the minimum for each or to become board certified in the state of Florida. For appellate, so you have to practice at least five years. You have to have substantial involvement in the specialty of appellate practice, which is defined as 30% or more during the three preceding years um, immediately before the application process. Handling of at least 25 appellate actions and five appellate oral arguments during the five years preceding the application, 45 hours of approved appellate practice certification CLEs in the three years leading up to the exam, and then peer review and a written examination. So it's, it's really onerous. If someone wants to seek certification in any specialty, but appellate in particular, you need to start thinking about it Four, three to four years out. Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, it's it's not something you can plan to do overnight. You really have to work towards it because just just accumulating that much CLE, and not to mention the record keeping. Right, I right. mean, part of the application process is detailing all of those twenty five appellate actions that you're claiming and the five oral arguments and. It's it's not a small task to document all of that just to be in a position to to apply. Right. And and what people don't realize is the level of detail you need. It's it's not just um I handled this appeal and here's the name of it. I mean, you have to know the three judges who were on the panel, the date of the last brief, the date of oral argument, the name and number and address of your opposing party. Um, I mean, it's really, I had one where all of my opposing attorneys had passed away. I mean, it was, 
it was just amazing. I couldn't give any contact information for the other side because they were gone. Um, and so I always recommend if someone's serious about this, that they download the application now and start working on filling it out now and just getting in the habit of tracking and recording the specific information necessary to complete the exam. Yeah, that that is something that I did uh, when I had my eye on getting certified as I started trying to track those things long before I was ever going to apply. And now we may talk about at some point that there are recertification requirements. Mm -hmm. And so I try and track those as I go because it saves a lot of headache when it's time to fill out the forms. So once you are certified, how long does the certification last? They're five-year increments. And so after five years, you have to reapply to keep your certification. And then after a period of continuous certification of 14 years, you are able to seek uh, a waiver of some of the requirements of recertification. Okay. So, but the average person, once they're certified, at least initially, you have to go through this recertification process every five years. And is that another application? Yes, it's a similar application, although the requirements are lessened. So instead of 25 appellate actions, you need 15. You still need five oral arguments. Um, But instead of 45 CLEs, you need 30. And you still need peer review. But the best thing is you don't have to take the exam again. And one of the things that I've noticed in, in being a part of this process is it can be difficult for people in recertification to get five oral arguments. It's very, yes, that's what we found. The last two uh, cycles, we've received more and more requests to be excused from the oral argument uh, requirement. And, you know, these are well-known appellate practitioners that nobody would question that they have a thriving appellate practice. But I think the appellate courts are dispensing with oral argument more often or clients are saying, no, I'm not going to pay for the oral argument. Let's just go on the briefs alone. And, you know, we, we need to do what our client wants and what's in their best interest. So we don't necessarily request oral argument, which also means we don't have it. Um, so we've seen more oral argument waiver requests on uh, recertification than we've seen in a long time. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a very real indicator that, that courts are doing less oral arguments to some extent. Yeah, definitely. So now what are your responsibilities as chair of the Appellate Practice Certification Committee? Um, well, mainly is to oversee the committee um, and to uh, what what the committee does, I should probably go back to that, is the committee is tasked with writing the actual exam that the applicants take. And uh, when I say writing the exam, I mean literally drafting the questions that become the exam questions. Now, it's, it's really impressive that the Florida Bar does retain professional test givers, I don't know what else to call them, who review all, <laughs> all of the exams and give us feedback if a question is uh, worded to where it suggests the answer or if the question is too convoluted or any of those other things that those of us that aren't 
test writers by profession, things we wouldn't know. Um, and I, I'm really impressed that the bar does that because the bar tries to make it fair for everybody who tries to get certified. But the committee writes the exam as part of their responsibilities. The committee subsequently grades that exam, um, which can be a pretty daunting um, process. And then the committee is also responsible with uh, reviewing every single application and determining if every applicant has met the requirements. So if there's 25 appellate actions, uh, if there's five oral arguments, if they fall within the timeline um, and things like that. And then we review their peer review and determine whether they need uh, another recommendation or a recommendation from someone who is not just a member of their law firm because they can't have that. The only thing we don't do is check their CLE compliance. Um, the bar staff does that. So my job is just to make sure that our committee does it. And then, you know, there's some other things I do on the side, like after we graded all the exams, I went through them again, just to make sure that our numbers were accurate as they were recorded before I transmitted them back to the bar. But we have a very, as you know, Duane, a very uh, dedicated and active committee and everybody works hard. Um, so it's, it's a nice group to have to be in charge of for sure. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the exam process because this was my first year going through this. And I, I too was impressed with how much work goes into, uh, creating the exam because like you say that the, the questions are sort of initially drafted by people, lawyers like you and me who serve on the committee. Uh, but then there's a a review process by these professionals, and there are I don't know what the word is either. People who are 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 taking the test, right? Who are are providing uh, or simulating taking the test, I guess, to to test the questions and to test the answers before uh, it ever goes into the exam. Oh, yeah. And it's it's really a very involved process. It's actually a two step process. The one that I neglected to mention the second process is what you just mentioned. The original go around is through literally an, an outside company that the bar pays to review all of our exams. And they, they review college exams, uh, SATs, things like that. Then you just reminded me of a second layer that we do. We ask uh, currently certified appellate practitioners, once it's been finalized, to take the exam and tell us what they think of it, which that's just crazy. I never want to take this exam ever again. But <laughs> right. literally people- You can't pay me enough, right, right, right to do that job. Right. But they volunteer to do that. And then we get their feedback because the original reviewers are just looking for the mechanics. Um, this, you know, your third multiple choice option is twice as long as the first or the other three. So that suggests that's the answer. And that's, you don't want that. Um, where the, when the lawyers take it, they're the practitioners. So they're pointing out, wait, wait, wait a minute. You are, this doesn't make sense. You haven't provided this critical key fact, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, we have a double layer of review that helps us uh, try to make this exam as fair as possible while still being difficult because board certification is a privilege. 
and you have to know what you're doing to to call yourself a specialist. So I, I know that there are probably people listening to the podcast that are have taken the exam, you know, and are are not going to feel sorry for us talking about how much work it is to prepare the exam. <laughs> correct, correct. <laughs> but, but, and, and I'm still learning. It was honestly a little overwhelming being on the committee for the first year, you know, but it's, uh, it's amazingly difficult to, to come up with questions that are fair and are clear and test the things that we want to test. You know, yes. it's, um, it's a very interesting process and, and grading as well. Right. You know, it's uh, sometimes you, you write questions uh, on the committee and then we read the questions, we grade the questions that we wrote. And sometimes you get answers that you were not expecting Correct. Uh, things that are not necessarily wrong. Uh, but not exactly what you expected. So there's a there's a lot of art and science right. that goes into the the exam, and it's it's quite a piece of work. Well, and I bet one thing you didn't realize would happen, Dwayne, is that you were assigned your topics. You didn't get to just say, "Hey, I've I had a great appeal on this issue. I'm going to write an exam question." Right. You actually got contrast standard of review between state and federal court, and, you know, which is not what you were hoping to do. Um, I had a couple criminal ones and I don't, I don't do criminal, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting when you have to sit down and try to write an exam question about something you've never done yourself. Now, I know that you, you and, and I, to some extent, at least in a blind way, know the, the, the results or the pre preliminary results of the testing, which we can't talk about. And I'm not going to ask you about that, sure. but, uh, what, Overall, uh, what is the passage rate for the exam? You know, what historically speaking? Um, normally, it's fifty percent or higher. Um, and and you know what we find, it's pretty obvious when we're grading this exam, who knows what they're doing and who doesn't. It's very it's it's obvious from the first or second essay question. You either someone just thought they could wing it because they've handled a couple of appeals. Or someone has a very, very unique specialty, like administrative appeals only or criminal appeals only. And they thought, how hard could it possibly be? And then they get in there and there's questions that they can't handle. It's, it's pretty clear that those people either didn't study or didn't study the right thing. Um, and they can take it again the next year. You know, we don't we don't discourage that and we don't prohibit it. Yeah. And to be clear, there are a lot of resources, right? I mean, people are not uh, out wandering in the woods on this. No. The bar has a lot of resources that, uh, to tell you what to study and what to be prepared for. And Correct. The appellate practice section runs uh, board certification exam review CLE so that the materials are it's not a secret what's on the test, right? It's just, um, it's a lot of material. Yeah, I mean, it's a secret in the sense that we don't give you the questions, but it's a lot of material to right. cover. And, <laughs> and I will tell you, the, the average person, not the average, the people who pass this exam start studying about two months out. This is not a, I've been doing this long enough, I'm just going to walk in and wing it. And what most people don't realize um, and why I think this exam is actually harder than the bar exam is because when you come out of law school, you're just constantly 
discussing these concepts. I mean, you're sitting in a class for eight hours a day. Well, not a class for eight hours a day, but you're in school. That's all you do. Then when you decide you want to be board certified, you've been practicing at least five years removed from law school. And you don't just sit around and talk all day about these specific concepts. So you've got to study. And a lot of people just don't do that. They just don't think they need to. So, and they're out of the, and even if they think they do, they're out of the habit, right? It's a, it's an easy right. habit to lose the, the ability to study for a couple hours each day right. and commit that stuff to memory and make right. a, uh, and, and a to, habit you know, it. I mean, I remember opening the Florida rules of appellate procedure and starting at the title and reading every rule and every committee note till I got to the end. You know, I mean, you just, you have to, you, you absolutely have to. You know, and it's funny you make the comparison with the bar exam. One of the things I always say about the bar exam, the the bar exam is a minimum competency Mm -hmm. exam, right? It's an exam to make sure that you know the minimum stuff that you need to know to call yourself a lawyer. And this exam is not that. It's not minimum competency. It's high competency, right? We're looking for people that we can represent our experts in a field. So it's uh, the standards are different. Um, They really are. They really are. And you know, this is an exam about nuances. And, you know, we just graded the exams a week and a half ago, Duane, so it's fresh in our mind. Many people miss the nuances. I mean, literally, there's a distinction in the question uh, about whether it's a final order or not. And people just didn't get that. They just didn't catch it. Um, And, you know, the bar exam is big, big concepts, uh, whereas this is very specific um, which you need to be prepared for. Yeah, definitely. So assuming someone goes through this whole process and they pass the the peer review and they pass the exam and they get board certified, what's, what's the advantage, I guess, to being board certified in your opinion? Well, uh, number one, you get to call yourself a specialist and, you know, I, my partners would, before I was certified, my partners would say to people, um, well, our, our appellate specialist is so-and-so and my partner, Jamie is a specialist. And, and you can't say that you're not allowed to call yourself a specialist in a particular area, unless you have the board certification designation, or you can verifiably, um, substantiate that you are a specialist in an area that doesn't have a board certification designation. For example, um, because there is an appellate certification, someone cannot call themselves an appellate specialist without being board certified. Yet, a plaintiff's attorney who practices toxic torts only, and there's no board certification uh, designation for toxic torts, she may refer to herself as a specialist as long as that can be substantiated. So hmm. I, you didn't know that, did you? Um, I did not know yeah, that. No, I didn't know that. That was, um, it, that's actually as a result of Chris Searcy. He filed a lawsuit against the Florida bar because he wanted a designation beyond just being a civil trial designated. And so, mm-hmm. um, and he was successful. So you, if, if there isn't a certification given by the Florida bar, but you want to have a, you know, say you want to be a ticket 
uh, clinic, whatever, person. Uh, if you can verify it, then you are allowed to use it. But the easiest way to be sure you're not getting in any trouble is to uh, become board certified in a recognized right, right. area, right? Isn't that the same with expert? Can't you, you can't call yourself an expert Correct. either, right? It's expert right. or specialist. Right. So, and so yeah. in addition to calling yourself a specialist, of course, um, there are, you know, I, I've learned through clients who have hired me that when two people look exactly the same, they just look to see who has more designations. And, you know, if, if, yeah. if it's comparing apples and, but someone's got a little extra, that's who they hire. It's helped me with, uh, getting higher fees both from my clients and from opposing parties and the court through court order. It has helped me when I serve as a fee expert. It allows me to, uh, I mean, I think it's uh, impressive to the judges that you are board certified. Um, so it's really, it's helpful. I find it's helpful. I, I agree. And I have never once regretted the, you know, the time or the effort that I put into doing this because it is a great marketing tool. It's a great, you know, objective indication that you know what you're doing as right. an appellate lawyer. And um, I, I, I find it to be very, right. very valuable. The, the Florida bar would also yes. say that one of the benefits is you might get lower malpractice insurance premiums. Yes. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it sounds, sounds reasonable. Although some would argue the standard uh, of care goes up if you're uh, certified. So uh, it's a double-edged sword. It's true. Uh, but, you know, and I will tell you, and I've learned this through people I know that are general counsels for their company. Um, the younger people that are hiring lawyers very much use algorithms and matrix. And I have had a general counsel tell me that I had these certain designations, one of them being board certified, that allowed them to check a box to recommend me to the board. Um, you know, and, mm. and that's, you know, it's, it's not just, we wish it would be, you know, Dwayne, you and I are older practitioners and we wish it would be word of mouth reputation, but when some 30 year old, you know, assistant general counsel or general counsel of a company is trying to find an appellate lawyer, he or she is going to Google us or he or she is going to throw it. Yes. LinkedIn. Yeah. And it's yeah. going to mm -hmm. enter these key phrases like certification or specialist or something like that. Um, and it, it's, it's all part of the algorithms and we need to, we need to have those extra things. So I think if we have convinced anybody listening to it, they need to apply. I think applications are due by August 31st. Yes. It's worth saying that the it's worth saying that the various areas have different deadlines because the bar can't process them all at the same time, right? Well, there, there's two exam periods. There's a March set of exams and a May set of exams, and your application is due based on when you fall. So, for example, appellate falls in March, so your application is they're available July 1st, and they have to be postmarked by August 31st. So now the other type of lawyer who might be listening to this or lawyers who are already board certified. And maybe we should make a quick pitch to them to consider serving on the uh, certification yes. committee. 
Yes. Uh, you will never, uh, <laughs> you will never hone your craft more than serving on this committee uh, because you realize what you have forgotten <laughs> and you were required. Uh, for example, this year, there was a major set of rules change, uh, rules changes after we had submitted our exam questions. And we, as you you know, we all had to go back, look at our questions and see if any of the new rule changes, and there had to be like 50, if any of them affected our questions. So it really helps your own practice to be doing this. Yeah, I thought having served on the appellate court rules committee, that that was a committee that really gets down to the nitty gritty and has, you know, appellate discussions to the nth degree. And, and it, it's, it's definitely <laughs> worse <laughs> or better depending yeah. on how you look at the certification committee. We, we really have to get into the weeds of the, the minutia of the rules and the law to make mm -hmm. sure that, that we're right. And it's a, uh, for people like us that enjoy that sort of thing, it's, it's fascinating and it's just a great, it's a great group of people and it's a satisfying, you know, work to do. And, uh, I'm looking forward to, to serving, uh, you know, a few more years for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's very rewarding and we've gotten, um, as tech technology advances, we've gotten better at what we do. Uh, our meetings used to be, all day and into the evening. And we've just been able to do things more efficiently. We've had meetings over the phone. Um, so it's, it's, it is a time commitment. It really is. Uh, but it's one, I think it's worth it. Well, Jamie, I will say again that you have just done a great job with the committee this year. You were the architect of a great exam and a very smooth grading process. It all went without a hitch. So Congratulations to you on a job that was both very well done and thankfully very nearly done for you, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I will stay on the committee to provide guidance for um, next year's group. I really appreciated having uh, Dave Caldavia around this year because there are just things that you don't realize you don't know. And so I am very grateful that uh, he was there and I plan to stay around, but I'm definitely ready to hand this off to someone else. So can I ask you my lightning round questions sure. that I ask guests on the podcast? Sure, and sure, sure. It's so far what the questions have shown is that there's a lot of unanimity amongst <laughs> the guests on the show. I get a lot of the same answers, okay. but, but let's see. So Oxford comma, yes or no? Yes. One space or two after a period? Two. Case names, underlining or italics? I am an underliner. I can't stand italics. Really? Yes. Okay. So now I have to ask you about that. <laughs> uh, is that just a personal preference? Is there any particular reason? I want, uh, I tend to italicize to emphasize. So if I'm also italicizing my cases, then it seems to all blend together. I also want the court to know immediately that if I am saying something and it's supported by case law, I think an underlined case stands out more. Hmm. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> what I find when I answer, ask these questions is when people have a reason that is not, you know, my preference, there's usually a very good reason behind it. And that makes a lot of sense. I, I will tell you my personal uh, take, I, I like italics, 
Um, part of that is probably a law review bias, you know, from being an editor uh, back in law school. But um, sometimes I find that underlining that it affects readability, that it's harder for me to read. Like I, I really dislike underlining for emphasis. I guess for case names, it's probably not not so bad. But but does it really bother you? when you see people who sometimes they do and sometimes they don't underline the period in a citation, cause that drives me nuts. I would not underline the underline or that period. Cause I don't think it's part of the citation. You know, what bothers me the most, the people what? that interchange like C is in italics, but the case is underlined. Oh yeah. That's, that's barbaric. And then to emphasize in their brief, they bold or they double underline. I mean, then I'm like, oh gosh, you're just hurting my eyes. You right. know what I mean? Or, or the people who use multiple forms of emphasis and they bold and underline yes. and italics, yes. right? Because it's really, yes. really important. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, but what probably drives me, I, it, to me, as long as you're consistent, I don't care. So if an associate turns in a product to me and they've chosen to italicize, I am not going to make them unitalicize their work product. No way. But I am going to make sure it's consistently done right. Um, that's one thing. And then the second thing is I will destroy the product if there's not a space between Southern and second or Southern and third. Oh, yes, me too. <laughs> I hate that too. I thought you were going to ask about that. <laughs> you know, I should put that, I'm going to put that on my list yes. of uh, possible new questions. Yeah, like, does it really matter? Because I always hear, well, yeah, I know it's supposed to be there, but does it really matter? Yes, yeah. it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. I always tell people, the first person to read your brief is someone who was an editor on Law Review. It matters mm -hmm. to them. It should matter to you. You know, it, yep. it may not matter to the judge when he or she finally gets to the brief, but that law clerk was top of their class and on law review and they know there's a space there. Yep. <laughs> and they wonder why you don't know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> know your audience. And what about Westlaw or Lexus? Well, I, I, I've always, I shouldn't say always, I have to use Westlaw at the firm. I can't remember the last time I've done Lexus. So mm. um, I, I really, I, I think I used Lexus back in the day, but I, I mean, I've been doing it 25 years now. So I have probably done Lexus for a while. At my old firm, we were constantly changing plans because the the deals they offer. And so now I use Westlaw here. I don't know if we'll go to, I think we offer Lexus and I just default to Westlaw now. What about you? Hmm. Um, you know, it's funny. I have talked about this a little bit before in at the University of Florida when we took legal research and writing and they divvied out passwords. They gave half of the 1Ls Westlaw passwords and half Lexus passwords. And I happen to be in the group that got Westlaw passwords. And that's sort of been my go-to preference ever since. Uh -huh. You know, it's w what you learn on and and uh and that's what I tend to use now. I love their the Westlaw Next web interface. I love yes. it. It works great yes. on my iPad. It works great, you know, on the internet at home if I'm using it there. It's just um I like the interface a yeah. lot. Yeah. What about iPhone or Android? iPhone. Okay. I thought, do you use an iPad too? Um I use it. I do not use it for work. 
uh, I am a dictator by nature. I actually dictate all my briefs. So I don't type on the computer or, I mean, I type, yes. But if I'm writing a brief, I actually dictate uh, the entire thing. Really? Okay. Now let me ask you about that. So do you just (laughs) dictate from the top of your head or do you dictate from sort of written notes? I create an outline of what my argument is going to be, like specifically, you know, Roman numeral one and then capital A, capital B, sub one, sub two, blah, blah. I write out a very detailed outline and then I dictate from that outline. And I can do, I've done up to 50 pages, pure dictation. Wow. Oh, that is interesting and probably a little bit unusual, I think, even for people, you know, in our age group. Gosh, that makes it sound yeah. so old. But um, see, I cannot uh, compose my thoughts well that way. I, I have to write because I'm 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 writing and I'm editing, you know, as I'm writing and the sentences are changing as they're coming out. And it's just um I never got to that point where I could compose, you know, well put together writing that way. So that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. I've been doing it for years and now I will edit all typing. Um, you know, I go back on and I type, but I, I mean, literally I, you know, I'm on the bike or in the pool or running quite a bit and I can compose motions and pleadings in my head while I'm doing that and then just come out and say them. Uh, into my dictation machine afterwards. Hmm. Yeah. And is that, was that something that was done a lot at the first place that you worked at a law school that you were encouraged to dictate? Or is that something that you've just always had a preference? Everybody dictated, you know, we were an insurance defense firm, so it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. high volume practice. And we all had our own secretary. There was none of this sharing thing like there is today. (laughs) And, you know, it was more efficient for, you know, because I I didn't type in law school. I didn't, I hand wrote all my notes. I mean, it's been, I've been out 25 years. So we weren't typing on computers. The rare person was typing on a laptop. Um, So I went from writing everything as I heard it to saying everything as I thought about it. Um, I just didn't, it would have taken so much extra time for me to try to type something. Now I've gotten more efficient over time. I mean, I type my emails. I don't dictate them, although I could, um, and I'll type small pleadings and all that. But when it comes to briefs, I, I dictate it Hmm. and we have voice recognition software. So it turns what I dictate into something. Nobody has to transcribe it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 And so, so that's, that's great from a, from a personnel usage perspective. Oh yeah. And I can dictate it. It pops up on my screen and I can just fix something right then and there if I want to. Like I see it come out on the, on the screen. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it works. I'll leave it at that. It works. Great. Now what about for pleasure reading, uh, paperbacks or Kindle or something electronic? How do you prefer to read? I, um, okay. Well, first of all, I read only nonfiction. I don't really like fiction except, uh, for the Chronicles of Narnia and the Harry Potter series. That's it. That's the only fiction (laughs) I've really ever read. I really prefer nonfiction. And traditionally I seem to buy a book as soon as it comes out. So I read a lot of hardback. 
Um, I am not a Kindle user or reading on my iPad. I wish I was, but I just prefer the book. So what, what kind of nonfiction like? Give me some examples. Okay. Um, I j- so far this year, I have read uh, uh, the book that President Clinton wrote with James Patterson, which that is fiction, but mm-hmm. there was so much real in it that I wouldn't consider it fiction. Um, I, right. I read The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Whatever book. Yeah. Um, I am reading, <laughs> right. I am, I read Peter Sokol, uh, Sagel's book from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the incomplete book of running. It's fabulous. It's about uh, mm-hmm. him guiding a blind athlete through the Boston Marathon the year there was the bombing. So it's very good. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah. Yep. I'm reading um, Michelle Obama's Becoming. And my next book in line is um, Sandra Day O'Connor's book called either First or First Lady. I can't remember. But that hmm. that's the type of reading I do. Uh, I really prefer, like I said, nonfiction. I don't know why. Uh, but that is, and if I really, really prefer nonfiction that has an athletic bent to it. So if it's a triathlete's background, I love it. If it's a, um, you know, I would, if Lindsey Vaughn writes a book, I'm going to get it. Uh, if Michael Phelps writes a book, I'm going to get it. I just, I really like things like that. So, Jamie, how can people get a hold of you if they want to, uh, if they need your services or want to talk to you? Sure. Uh, I'm at Holland and Knight. And so my email address is pretty easy. It's Jamie, J-A-M-I-E dot Moses, M-O-S-E-S at H-K-Law.com or uh, my phone number, 407-244-5103. I'm pretty easy to find if you Google me. Uh, I've been really active in bar organizations, so I tend to pop up if you just type in Jamie Moses. So it shouldn't be hard. Great. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. I hope that uh, maybe we'll find a reason for you to come back again and be on the podcast again in the future. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Many thanks to Jamie Moses for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which you should be able to read on your podcast player. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions on the show. So I'm starting to get to the point where I run into people all the time who say, hey, I'm listening to the podcast. And I love that. Please do that if you see me. But, you know, I just sit here and I talk into a microphone and I hope that it's making a difference. I know that people are downloading the show, but it's still nice to hear from people who are downloading the show and listening to it and giving me some feedback and some comments. That's great. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. We're going to be talking about social media for lawyers and a whole lot more. So I hope you'll join me then. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.